Welcome to Game Dev Stories, an interview show about the development histories of your favorite video games. On the show, we interview industry veterans and some indie designers and find out about how games are made and the people who made them. Today, we have Ron Gilbert, designer of Maniac Mansion, Monkey Island, and the Humongous Computer Games, among many other projects. Thank you so much for joining us, Ron. Thank you. Uh, let's start before Maniac Mansion. Uh, what led you to develop video games? How did you get into the industry? Well, I think it started out when I was, you know, young, probably 13 years old or so. And, you know, the like the Apple, the very first, you know, Apple had had just come out and, uh, you know, the, the Commodore PET, not even the Commodore 64. And I really started to get into programming because my my father was a physicist and so he was always into you know the latest technology and uh, there were you know small little microcomputers at his office and so I really got into that and I think when you're a kid you want to and you want to program you want to make games right you mm-hmm. don't want to write financial software you want to write games and so sure. I just started doing that and. Um, the more I did it, and I sent some some stuff off to some companies, and I was eventually offered a job at a company um, doing game stuff, and that's pretty much how I fell into this. Were you playing games at that point, and what were you playing or like interfacing with? Um... Well, the things I was playing were were all arcade games, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they, there were no home computer games really. There was the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. Um, I didn't have one. A friend of mine had one, but I didn't actually have one. So I spent a lot of time just in the arcades, you know, playing Space Invaders and Asteroids and, you know, all, all sorts of games like that. So that's, you know, when I first got into programming, that's really what I did was I just kind of made arcade style games because that's all I really, um, really knew. Was there anything that you saw that you thought, this is it, this is the kind of thing I want to make? Or did you just have to make the thing you wanted? Uh, you know, I don't, game-wise, I, I don't I don't really know. I mean, I got really into um, the, the pure programming aspect of it. And I created a little program for the Commodore 64 called Graphics Basic, which was a extension of the basic language which added all these graphics commands and animation and sound and so i really got into that kind of aspect of doing this and it was actually that program that got me the the job offer um so it was i was kind of coming out a little more just from the technology standpoint rather than the than the game standpoint Back then, you had to almost develop the tools that you were going to use for your game. Uh, could you describe some of the tools you developed and how you went about it? Um, well, once I got to Lucasfilm, I had started to... Um, I, w- I was really basically porting, right? Mm-hmm. They, they had a bunch of games on the Atari 800, and they wanted them on the um, Commodore 64, so I was hired to do... Um, porting from the 800 to the Commodore 64. And then after um, I finished with that first project was when I started Maniac Mansion. And Maniac Mansion was a, a large game and it required a lot of um, 
you know, story and narrative stuff and just programming that whole game in 65 to assembly language was just not something that I could really do. And so that's when I um, came across and created the whole SCUM system, which is the scripting language that I ran on the 64. And that, that was really kind of the main tool that I used you know, from that point forward to do games, because you know, all my games are very narrative and very adventure uh, adventure mm-hmm. games. I imagine most of our audience knows Scum, but could you describe just uh, for maybe the people who don't like how that system works and why it was so innovative at that time? Yeah, I mean, Scum stands for Script Creation Utility for Maniac Mansion, and it just allowed the programmers to to program the game not in a hardcore programming language, but in a much higher level scripting language that was a little more English-based and was a little more friendly to people that weren't hardcore programmers. And so, you know, David Fox was the first person that really used that language on Maniac Mansion, and it just allowed him to really, um, you know, script the game rather than worrying about, you know, opcodes and you know, all those sorts of stuff. And it also came with a, a very different user interface because the user, mm-hmm. user at the time games were very text-based, right? You type stuff in, mm-hmm. and um, it, Maniac Mansion just put all the verbs that you had right on the screen, right? And you move your mouse um, wasn't a mouse, but with your joystick you move your cursor around and you select the verbs and you select the objects just by indicating them on the screen, which was very very different for the time because most people were used to parsers. And so I think that interface really became synonymous, you know, with the scum game was, was that kind of interface. What do you feel makes accessible adventure game design? It's, it's developed so much and you're a big part of that history. So what do you think makes a good adventure design? Well, I think, I think you have to have a compelling narrative. Um, you have to have a story that really pulls the player through it. And I think you need to have a really compelling world, right? The world needs to be interesting. Um, and so I think if you have those things and then you layer on top of that really, really good puzzle design, right? So you're basically solving puzzles. And if you have you know, really strong puzzle design, you know, it doesn't feel like it's cumbersome to work your way through the narrative in the world. And so I think those you those are the three main elements, and I think you put those three elements together in a good adventure game, and you you know you've got a really good game. What was the culture like when you were joining Lucas Arts, and how was it that you got into um, being a part of like a new development after the ports? It was a small group. It was seven people, right? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like it was a large group of people, and um, everybody was you know super smart and super interesting and super into games and and so it was a very kind of collaborative you know group of people and i got done porting uh the game from the atari to the commodore 64 and during that time i had befriended gary winnick who was literally the only artist you know at lucasfilm (laughs) at the time and i befriended him and we became good friends and he and I started talking about Maniac Mansion, you know, and so we just kind of put together a very simple kind of design document for the thing and and really passed it around to those seven people in the group. 
and everybody really seemed to like it and so it just it kind of became a project right there was no official green light process or anything like sure. that it just it just became a project because everybody liked it do you miss that style of development in small teams and how it could just be kind of intuitive what would become a project uh, yeah, I, I, I do. I mean, I think you have to think a lot more about you know, what becomes a project today, just because the industry is much larger and there's a lot more money at stake. And But I do I do miss small teams. You know, Return to Monkey Island had around 25 people on the team, and, and that was about the limit of what I, what I want to do. Um, I would much rather, you know, be in a team of, you know, five to 10 people working on something. And a lot of that just becomes part of kind of sharing a vision, right? You have a vision for a game. And if you have a team of people, you need to really share that vision with them. So everybody knows, you know, what it is that you're making. And when you have, you know, five or 10 people, you sharing that vision is just an organic process, right? You mm -hmm. just share it by talking to everybody and you absorb the ideas in. And when you start to get above 20 or 30 people, you now need a process to share your vision. And that's kind of where it all falls apart to me because I'm just, I'm sure. much more of an organic type of person. I don't want to mm -hmm. call, you know, vision sharing meetings, you know, to inform the team of stuff. So I, I, I enjoy small groups. So how do you feel that the development of adventure games has changed now? How is it different? now than it was when you were developing Beckett LucasArts? Well, I think when, you know, when we were making adventure games back at LucasArts, Maniac Mansion and Monkey Island and, you know, Loom and all those things, adventure games were really the hot genre, right? They, they mm -hmm. were the thing that everybody wanted to play. And so you know, it, was, it was a little bit different where now adventure games, at least, you know, kind of, you know, point and click games, are really a very niche audience, right? It's, it's um, I mean, it's, it's not a small audience, but it's still very niche audience compared to a lot of other games, which, you know, um, you know, on day one, they've sold two or three million copies. And that's just not gonna happen with adventure games. So you're, you're dealing with this, this, this niche audience. And I think, you know, adventure games, the point and click genre, there's this stigma that's attached to it. And I think a lot of that came from, you know, in the in the mid to late 90s, a lot of really bad adventure games were made. Mm -hmm. And they really kind of enforced this um, this view in a lot of people that that adventure games were badly designed and puzzles were horrible and moon logic and all this stuff. And it just it just gave them this stigma. And even if you design a really good adventure game, you know, which I think Return to Monkey Island is a very good one, it still has to overcome that stigma because mm -hmm. people go, oh, well, it's a point-and-click game. That's you know, going to be crappy puzzles and moon logic and all this stuff. And I think that's kind of a problem, you know, for that. Um, and then you have adventure games, which are adventure games, but people don't see them as adventure games. You know, I look at a game like Firewatch, for example. That's an adventure game. I agree. Nobody yeah. saw it as an adventure game, right? So it mm. didn't have the stigma that was attached to it. That's interesting because um, it has all those same puzzle elements and it leads you through the context of the world. The world is so interesting. Like you say, yeah. that's good design. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, you have the Death's Bank poster behind you. I, I believe I interviewed you maybe like when that was launched for like a mm-hmm. long defunct game website now. Uh, that is almost like a evolution too of how you control an adventure and it's more of a, a different genre itself, but has some of those same elements in there. Yeah, it's, it is it is an adventure game, but it's kind of wrapped in this kind of RPG, you know, mm-hmm. um, kind of world and gameplay. It has a lot of fighting and combat and, and stuff. And so it was, you know, trying to kind of get out of that a little bit uh, with it. You know, unfortunately, it's like I don't think it was a very good role playing game. I think I think mm-hmm. I fell down on that kind of aspect of it. I think maybe the adventure game part, like in that kind of Animal Crossing vibe of the spherical world kind of was interesting, maybe more mm-hmm. than the role-playing mechanics. Because maybe it was short for like that kind of a character development. But uh, yeah, how do you feel about like that phase of your development? Is there a favorite project of yours? And is it some of the early stuff? Uh, you know, I think the, some of the most favorite stuff I worked on were the the kids games that Humongous mm-hmm. Entertainment, you know, Pajama Sam and Pop Pot and Freddy Fish and all those. And I think if I look at all the things I've created in my career, it's like I'm probably most proud of that stuff than I am anything else, including Maniac Mansion or Monkey Island or anything, uh, are, are really those games. And a lot of people play those games. You know, we sold... 20 million copies of those games and i'm just i'm always coming across people who you know they're adults now and they have kids now but they grew up playing those games there are just millions of people that play those games but they just they don't a lot of people don't make the connection you know between me and those games Mm. is that what you would want to be connected with what was like your story for moving to humongous how did that kind of develop well, that came about when I was um, had just finished uh, Return to Monkey Island or um, LeChuck's Revenge, Monkey Island mm-hmm. 2. And I was watching this six-year-old kid, and he was playing Monkey Island. And he couldn't read, so he didn't know any of all the text that was showing up on the screen. Um, he didn't understand, you know, the real... Um, you know, the puzzles or the world, but he was still having a lot of fun just walking around, just, you know, opening doors. He figured out what the verbs all meant. So he could open doors and he could talk to people and he could do stuff. And he was just having a great time, even though he had no idea what was really going on with the story. Hmm. And it kind of gave me the idea, well, what if, what if I built real adventure games just for kids? Hmm. Um, not kind of dumbed down adventure games, you know, not weird activity set adventure games, but just actual real adventure games. And that was really you know, the whole genesis of Humongous Entertainment. And if you look at the games we've built there, you know, Pajama Sam, Papa, Freddy Fish, you know, Spy Fox, all of those things, they're real adventure games, right? They have hmm. real puzzles you have to do. Um, they're not as complex and as, as deep as a adult game would be, but they're real adventure games for kids. There was this thing where maybe I was the kid who was maybe too young to be playing Monkey <laughs> Island, and I enjoyed it so much. And then I uh, had a younger brother eventually, and um, I was trying to show him these putt-putt and all these uh, humongous games, and I think I must have got more engaged with him than he had. Like, there is still <laughs> such... Uh, significant design merit there i mean it's the same thing it's 
different wrapping. And, you know, now I have a six-year-old and, and I don't know how these games have been really preserved. Uh, uh, do you ever feel like, uh, do you own the licenses? Could you bring them back? No, I, I don't own any of that mm. stuff. So I have I have no control over it. You you can buy a bunch of it on Steam, I know. So you can still you can still buy a lot of those. And I think they came out with um, some of the games on the Switch. Yeah. As well. Oh, that's interesting. She's she's a big Switch player, so maybe I could get her on putt putt, and maybe I'll report back to you how it's uh, how it's going because uh, that sounds wonderful to do. Um, that seems like a big issue with the uh, game development historically, especially through nineties two thousands. Um, what would you say to like developers who are starting to develop about like owning your own stuff and and what that struggle has been for you? Yeah, it's it's been a real struggle. I mean, I think you should always own your own stuff. Um, because if if you don't own it, people will do stuff with it that you don't necessarily agree with or you just do not participate in. Um, you know, I've made a whole lot of games and I have made no money on those games except the mm. salary I was paid when I worked there. I've made no money on you know, Monkey Island or Maniac Mansion or any of those. Return to Monkey Island was the first game, that, the first Monkey Island game that I've made any kind of you know back in uh, royalties on and it's it, it's a real problem because i see a lot of developers who um you know they need money from a publisher and they end up basically giving away all of their ip for that money it's like yeah you got to make the game you wanted but you you didn't you know you don't have control of this thing and it's it's a lot more than just making money but it's having control over it's it's being able to shepherd this thing into the future and i just i don't have that with anything that i've created except for thimbleweed park thimbleweed mm -hmm. park is the only game that i actually own and control i saw on uh online that you uh found out about the recent monkey island uh, dlc uh, maybe the same as we all did um how did you feel about that and uh so you weren't aware of it at all that they were incorporating it in another game? Um, I was not aware of it until about a month before it was announced. Okay. So the, this whole thing went on and, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that people get to play Monkey Island and Sea of Thieves, but I just, I felt like the whole thing was very, um, very ha handled very, very poorly to not even inform me that this was going on. And, you know, I was working on Return to Monkey Island the whole time that this was happening, and they just never told me about it. And, you know, certainly they have the legal right to do that, right? But I think it's it's just, it's important that you own what you are, have created or things like this happen. Doesn't it feel like the first game that you were able to really profit from in a meaningful way there? they're kind of using for something else now and in, in some way they're kind of banking off that that profit that you finally get yeah i mean i got i got very tired of like you know mm -hmm. making other people rich you know and that's that's kind of the situation you get into if you have a successful game that you don't really control is you end up making other people a lot of money you arrived at like just the right point in crowdfunding where adventure games were really hot on that market uh what did you learn from that? And do you think that's still a way to fund games or do you think that's kind of dried up? I think that's really dried up. And I don't think it's just adventure games. I think it's video games in general just do not do well on Kickstarter. 
And um, I think a lot of that is because you know, we did see this huge surge of, of video game projects and um, a lot of them were, were never actually got made or got made very, very poorly. And a lot of that is because I, I don't know that people that start those projects truly understand what has to go into it. You know, the, mm. you're making this game. And I also worry when I see Kickstarter projects today and they're asking for $15,000. You know, you cannot make a game for $15,000. Um, you know, Thimbleweed Park um, was about $1.1 million to make that game. And that's that's not a weird outliner as long as you're actually paying people, right? If if mm-hmm. if you're building your game by just getting a bunch of friends together and having them work for free, um, you can certainly make a game a lot cheaper. But I think you're also going to get exactly what Kickstarter has brought for all those projects is they just don't get finished, and that's disappointing. You know, I would love to make Thimbleweed Part Two, but there's no way I will get enough money from Kickstarter to be able to make it. So my alternatives are I, I have to go to a publisher and, you know, basically give them all of the profits from the game, uh, you know, or, you know, weird other ways to go raise money. I just don't know. I don't know how I can raise the money to make the movie part two. I mean, Thimbleweed Park was terrific in that it was one of those Kickstars that most aligned with, I thought, the vision that was sold to us. So I think uh, that that was so rare, though. I mean, I've funded projects that either weren't complete or weren't what they said. And, and I mean, I know mm-hmm. how that feels. Uh, but what what would you do now? if you Are you working on a project? What, how would you fund it right now? Yeah, I am working on a game. It's a it's a it's a it's a small I don't know if I'll ever release it, but I'm working mm-hmm. on a game that's kind of a. Uh, uh, you know, pixel art, top-down view, Zelda-like RPG game. And I'm doing it mostly for fun. And, you know, if it actually ends up being something, um, I'll, you know, I'll go ahead and release it. But that game, you know, I can do all the programming and the writing on that game. Uh, Mm -hmm. I would need to hire an artist to do the art stuff. Um, So that's a game that if I were to end up releasing, it would be very um, cheap, you know, to be able to do. Um, as opposed to uh, a very uh, intensive game like Thimbleweed Park, which required, you know, several artists and several programmers and sound people and, you know, audio recording and actors and you know, all this stuff. It just it just adds up very, very quickly. Are you following, like, the modern adventure games? Are there any that you play? And do you play any games? Yeah, I do. I do play games. I play games on my on my Switch mostly. Mm-hmm. That's kind of my my main you know gaming platform these days. And um, I've I've just started replaying a lot of the old Zelda games, you know, um, like Mish Cap and stuff like that. And I really do kind of enjoy those. And I played. Um, there's some platformers um, that I've played on the Switch that I enjoy. And I've just started. Playing started um, Stardew Valley. I never, I never really got into that when it mm-hmm. first came out, and I just started playing that recently, and, and that's that's kind of fun. And I toyed around with Dwarf Fortress a little bit, and that's sure. that's a hard game to get into. <laughs> Absolutely. But, um, 
yeah that was i mean that was kind of fun and you know i i i like um dead cells i played that quite a bit i really enjoyed i enjoyed that there are some adventure games um that i like i don't really play kind of the classic point and click type adventure games um but there were some there were some other games i i i cannot remember the name of it but it was more of a narrative game about um this person like in the Arctic in the 1980s, I think it was. And it's just, it's a really nice kind of story game that I really enjoyed quite mm. a bit. Not really a lot of puzzle stuff going on, but it was, it was a good, it was a good narrative game. Don't you feel that like uh, Zelda and maybe Stardew Valley are even like pulling from adventure games in some ways, they have these elements and uh, kind of the wraparound, uh, the presentation's different, but but maybe the format might have some similarities there. There's, yeah, I mean, adventure games, I think really pioneered the interactive narrative piece of things. And and a lot of games have really lifted from that that aren't really adventure games. And certainly, you know, the more modern Zeldas um, have done that. And, you know, Stardew Valley also, just, just in the way you go around and make friends with people and give people presents and stuff. There's just there's this weird narrative component to all, to all of that. But, you know, I think adventure games certainly borrowed from a lot of that. I mean, the very early Zeldas, you know, didn't really predate Maniac Mansion by that much. Mm. So I think there's a kind of um, a lot of independently figuring uh, that stuff out. What was the most difficult game that you developed? What was uh, a project that maybe barely made it through? Uh, barely made it through. Um, I, I had, there was a game that I was working on um, at Humongous Entertainment because um, we also did uh, Total Annihilation, you know, which was sort mm -hmm. of the kind of cave dog brand. And I had a game that was working there called uh, Good versus Evil or Good and Evil, I think it was. And that was a kind of an RPG type game. And that um, I kind of I canceled that about halfway through because it just it just wasn't forming up to being anything that I really wanted it to be. And that one was hard. I really liked that game. I really thought that game could have been something, but it just it just wasn't really going anywhere. But I think other than that, I mean, I think everything I've worked on has made it out. So I, there hasn't really been any really difficult projects that um, just didn't make it. Do you feel you'd work on Monkey Island again, or is there anything else you'd want to return to if you could? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's anything that I really want to return to. You know, mm -hmm. I think Maniac Mansion would be fun. Um, there's a lot of design problems with that game. Mm -hmm. um, just there's a lot of weird stuff there's a lot of death and dead ends which you know which was normal for that time and i would love to go back to maniac mansion and just fix all that you know and just you know add add a couple of new characters and 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 fix that but you know i don't i don't know that i really can i mean once again it's a project i don't really own or control mm. um, you know, so I really wouldn't have the kind of ability to go really do what I wanted with that thing independently. How about Monkey Island? Do you see more work there? Or how do you feel about it? 
I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, if there is or there is not with that. I think, you know, when when Dave and I did return to Monkey Island, it's like we 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 were not wrapping up the franchise, but we really wanted to do a game that kind of almost wrapped up or could wrap up our necessarily involvement in the game, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody ever since you know Monkey Island came out, the question I get from people is, "What is the secret of Monkey Island?" Right? <laughs> just constantly, "What is the secret of Monkey Island?" What do you say? <laughs> and well, I mean, I I just kind of brushed it off, right? Yes. And then, and I think with Return to Monkey Island, I really wanted to tell people what the secret of Monkey Island was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the secret of Monkey Island really truly is that Guybrush is in an amusement park, right? Mm-hmm. That, that was the idea way back before Monkey Island 1 ever became a game, that that was what it was. And that kind of, you know, fell to the wayside as, as you know, we kind of went on with the games. But, you know, you can see that. You can see that a little bit in you know, Monkey Island 1. You can certainly see that at the end of Monkey Island 2. And I really just, I wanted to to get that out there with that game. Um, I mean, I, I would love to do another Monkey Island game. I don't know that I'll really be able to, but I would mm. I would love to do one. But I think if I did one, I would do it as a full 3D game. I, I think Monkey Island is done as a like 2D point and clicker adventure type game. I think mm. that market has become so niche that it really can't kind of bust out and become something really interesting um, if, if it's not kind of 2D and, and if the game play doesn't evolve a little bit. Do you have a dream project you haven't been able to make that's been in your head? Is there something that is always kind of with you or have you made those games? Yeah, I don't think there is anything that's really kind of, kind of with me you know, in, mm-hmm. in that respect. That I've, you know, I, I really, I really enjoy, you know, the old school Zelda games quite a bit. And the thing I'm working on now kind of is a little bit of an old school Zelda type game. And cool. I'm having a yeah. ton of fun, you know, working on that. Um, but th- there isn't some big dream project that I want to do. What would you tell developers just getting started? What would your advice be for how to develop your career? I know it's very different now, maybe, but uh, yeah, what would you say? It, it's very, very different now. The thing I would tell you know indie developers um, is is they should they need to just release games. Right? I see a lot of indie developers who've been working on their one little pet project for five, six years, and they just haven't released it because they don't want to release it if it's not perfect. Mm. And I, I think you just need to build and release stuff as fast as you can because you learn a lot every time you do that. And all of that is just really good experience that you, that you kind of take in and, and move forward with. Everyone wants to be a small Nintendo or Miyamoto, right? But, it, you, you know, that's not the reality of all development. <laughs> no, uh, it's not. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Ron. I really appreciate your time here. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Uh-huh. Uh-huh.